I V M. For the last couple of months, a war has been going on, a trade war. Now I can almost hear all of you who play Call of Duty roll your eyes, but there have been tensions going on between China and the U.S. over trade and tariffs. What does China's colonial history have to do with its tariff policy? Can a 1930s trade war between the nationalists and Japan have any lessons for the trade war today? These are some of the questions we're going to answer in today's episode of States of Anarchy. Welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan, and every week I talk about foreign policy, global affairs, and international relations. Today we're talking trade, tariffs, and nationalists. In the first half of today's episode, we're going to be talking about Chinese history, about how tariffs evolved from the 20th century onwards. In the second half, we talk trade wars, Confucius Institutes, and the rise of China. But first, let's take a short break. Hello, 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 everybody! Welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You know the IPL has been going full bore this week, or for the last couple of weeks. If you podcast around that, we got a couple of suggestions for you. There is a new show that we've launched called What a Player. It's being hosted by Akash Mehta, the host of Arta Lab, and Siddharth Dudeja, who is a really funny stand-up comic. Also on Cyrus says we've been doing this Wednesday episode called Lanzo, Left Arm Not So Orthodox. On that, Cyrus is talking to a variety of different people about what happened the previous week in cricket. And if you want to get a historical perspective on what T20 cricket is and how it's come about, you might want to check out the show we did a couple of years ago called The Cricket Wala Chronicles. It's hosted by Ayaz Memon, and the first season, Ayaz examines how T20 cricket started. And speaking of the action this week, it's an abundance of Cyruses this week on Cyrus Says. As Cyrus Brocha is joined by Cyrus Oshidar, Adman, and former creative director of MTV India. Both of them talk about the heyday of Indian music television and why it was a success. On advertising is dead. Varun is joined by his ex-boss Saurabh Kanwar, co-founder of ATKT. They talk about what ATKT does and how it's helping the community of college students. Why the current generation is more equipped than the last and more. On the Sponge Podcast, Ambi Parmeshwaran talks about why it is crucial to say no to incompatible clients. On this week's episode of the Vishal Gondal Show, Vishal is in a conversation with Niyati Shah, who talks about the importance of sexual health, parenting, and spreading awareness about the subject. On our Kannada podcast, Thale Harate, Pavan Srinath, and Ganesh Chakravarti talk about voting and predict election results with Karthik Shashidhar. On Dating Is Garbage, the co-founder of Books on Toast, Anuya Jakatdar, talks about how the patriarchal system surrounds the institution of marriage. And with that, let's get you on with your show. Welcome back to States of Anarchy. For those of you who are not familiar with Chinese history, I'm going to do something super quick. I'm going to do a one-minute recap of China in the 19th and 20th century. So the Qing Dynasty was the last imperial dynasty to rule over China. The Opium Wars were fought, and then China opened up to trade with other countries in the mid 1800s. But then China lost influence of Korea, of Vietnam, and Taiwan when the Sino-Japanese War was fought in 1885. So people were super unhappy over the fact that more and more territory was being carved out. So they rose up in the Boxer Rebellion against foreign powers. But the difference between a revolution and a rebellion is that a rebellion usually fails. But China had to pay even more indemnities to these foreign powers. Finally, there was the revolution of 1911 when imperial rule was finally abolished, and then the nationalists took over and established the Republic of China. 
So now you remember that World War Two was fought around this time, and then the Communist Party of China became a big deal. They fought with the Nationalists, and finally they came to power in 1949, and they've been in power ever since. So you know that history is never this simple, right? This was just to refresh your brains in case ninth standard history was a subject you skimped on. My guest for today is Felix Boking. He's a fellow at the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington D.C. He recently wrote a book called No Great Wall: Trade Tariffs and Nationalism in Republican China in the Years 1927 to 1945. Felix, welcome to States of Anarchy. Tariffs have always played an important role in the history of China. There's a legacy of colonial history, right? In the 19th century, the opium wars were fought because foreign powers refused to pay high tariffs so that they could trade with China. How did this legacy play out when the nationalists took over in the 1920s? Thanks for the warm welcome, Hamzini, and it's great to be on the show. That legacy definitely plays a role. Yes, so. I think it's important to be about to be clear about the specifics here. So, foreigners are brought into that system of collecting tariffs at the request of the local Chinese official in Shanghai at the time of the Taiping Rebellion in the 1860s,、um, when、uh, China is being rocked, late imperial China is being rocked by a millenarian rebellion,、um, and the local、uh, Chinese official decides that it is. It makes more sense to have foreigners collect、um, tariffs from other foreigners because、um, that is going to make the collection more stable.、Um, there is then also the argument of、uh, bringing in people who have specific technical skills. But for the first fifty years or so of that system,、um, it is foreigners who assess what the value of imported goods is, and then it's Chinese local officials who do the actual collecting.、Yeah. That changes during the revolution of 1911, 1912, when um, the um, politician Yuan Shikai, who ends up becoming a president of the Republic of China, decides that because the Chinese politics of this period are so unstable, it makes sense to let the foreigners do,、uh, do the collecting as well, because a foreign merchant is not going to argue with another foreigner. Collecting the tax, whereas he might well argue dispute the legitimacy of a, a Chinese official being appointed by a very transitory regime. So that sounds like a、um, very positive reading of that entire history, and like a reading of that history which basically sets out to defend the foreign element in the administration of China's、uh, tariffs. But that is what the historical record suggests. There, obviously. That entire situation of hierarchical relationships within the customs service—the idea that expertise is being associated with foreignness—those are all very problematic dimensions. But at the end of the day, in the setting up initially, and then in asking the foreigners to do the collection as well as the assessment, those are decisions that are being made by Chinese、um, officials and politicians of the time. The larger context here, that of China and、um, how it sits within the regional and international trade system,、mm. that is what very much one of China's experience of、uh, colonialism, or as Chinese、um, historians would put it, in the proper Marxist term- terminology of semi-colonialism. Given that China,、mm. that all of China is never actually formally colonized, so the idea that 
um, foreigners force China to open itself to trade um, in the late um, 1830s, culminating in the first opium war. Uh, the idea that the conditions under which China's foreign trade takes place are imposed on China externally through the use of military force. Um, and that is why this whole idea of uh, China playing a um, proactive role in the international trade system um, of China benefiting from international trade is something that is politically very contentious um, and that the Communist Party manages to use, in, uh, especially in the late 40s, um, to criticise uh, the records of the nationalists. Whereas the nationalists at the time have a much more uh, positive vision of what China's role in an international trade system could be. Uh, the Republic of China is um, one of uh, the um, countries that is particularly keen on um, the general agreement on tariffs and trade. It's represented at the early conferences setting up that system. So uh, there is a moment in the late 1940s where the nationalists very much on the back of the experience of having been one of the major allies in the Second World War, see themselves as being able um, to play a much more positive role in an international system, including an international economic system. Um, and that's something that is only becomes impossible only with the defeat in the Civil War of mm -hmm. 1949. All right. So what does this mean for the legacy of China after um, the nationalists fell from power? Once the communists came in, as you said, um, what does it mean for the way China looked at tariffs apart from, um, you said they were not for taking a proactive role in the international system? So in terms of the legacy, because we are dealing, I mean, we're dealing with two Chinese states today. One, of course, is um, much more powerful, much bigger and much richer than the other. So. I think it makes sense for the time being to talk about um, the People's Republic of China there primarily. So I think what this legacy of um, foreign influence, foreign domination, um, foreign aggression means is that when it comes to the way in which policymakers in the People's Republic of China think about international trade, um, there is always a concern there that uh, China might end up um, in the same place in which it ended up in the 19th century. It might end up in a situation in which um, conditions for foreign trade are being externally imposed on it. I mean, these days, that, of course, is much less likely to happen through the direct use or the threat of a direct use of military force. But um, if you look at the kind of things that I think really matter to Chinese foreign policymakers, it's sovereignty and stability uh, there's this wonderful new book about uh, Chinese grand strategy by Sulman Khan mm -hmm. at the Fletcher School, uh, Haunted by Chaos, mm -hmm. who talks about how that is basically the one uni unifying thread that runs through all of uh, the PRC's uh, foreign policy from Mao all the way to Xi Jinping. So he talks about chaos um, and stability. I would say that sovereignty is another way of thinking about that. So you have a trade regime in the 19th century where um, China's ability to set its own tariffs is severely limited by a series of treaties, beginning with the Treaty of Nanjing. Um, so uh, China's, China 
for example, cannot collect more than uh, um, import tariffs that are higher than 5%. Um, that is seen as a constraint on China's sovereignty, which it is. And the memory of that particular legacy that for a period of almost 100 years from um, the Treaty of Nanjing to um, the Chinese Civil War, uh, there were various constraints on China's sovereignty, including its economic sovereignty. That, I think, is there as a legacy informing um, Chinese uh, policymakers. Um, and therefore, whenever Chinese policymakers talk about what China's role in the world should be and um, how China should participate in international organizations, whether they are economic or political, there always is a concern about sovereignty somewhere behind this. And it, it's also, uh, it feeds into a narrative, right? That there was a century of humiliation in which our economic sovereignty was fundamentally challenged, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the reasons that we could not continue uh, to become the great power that we always were. Uh, and personally, I also find that this is a narrative that's coming up uh, with uh, the CBC's 100-year celebration. And the idea is that when you can, it, it makes for a very compelling narrative, particularly with a lot of what's happening with the supposed trade war between the US and China. What do you think? Um, what do I think about how that trade war is going to end? Or um... uh, No, what, uh, about narrative building. Right, about narrative building. We'll, we'll come back to the trade war. Yes, um, we'll come back to the trade as, war later. As you'll know in the book, um, I talk about uh, trade wars in the 1930s quite a lot, and I think there are mm. historical lessons to be drawn. Um, the narrative building, yes, I mean, you know, we're dealing, first of all, with this ultimately quite strange idea of a communist party fulfilling China's destiny as a great power, which is inherently, I would say, a nationalist project. Um, so nationalist with a lowercase n. So uh, um, you know, we have this idea that uh, legit- political legitimacy in China today derives from the fact that the Chinese Communist Party um, has been able to um, restore China to what they see as something that is closer to China's rightful place in the world. And there probably is a debate to be had about what the party thinks is China's rightful place in the world, whether really, as some authors have suggested, uh, this is a, we are looking at a Chinese attempt to become a global hegemon or whether what the uh, party really wants is a multipolar system in which China is one of several regional hegemons. Um, But certainly, I think uh, the party derives political legitimacy from having overseen, after decades of uh, earlier disasters under its own leadership, um, a rise of China to a a much stronger position within um, the global system. So I think it's, you know, that is a compelling narrative. And one reason why it's compelling is that it is fundamentally um, true. Um, if we look at the period from the late 1970s to um, the present day, and I'm not being an apologist there for uh, the PRC uh, regime, um, you know, if we look at uh, the number of people um, who are lifted out of poverty, um, if we look at the way in which China interacts with other countries, in all of those respects, um, China is um, in a stronger position today. Um, than it was um, 40 years ago. 
Yeah, I don't think there's any disputing that. But the rise of China is something that uh, is at the back of everyone's mind. Um, at least with a lot of conversations that I've been having on foreign policy, mm-hmm. it seems uh, to be the backdrop or, oh, but you know, the rise of China. Mm. And that's fundamentally because they've managed to achieve something that possibly no other country, state has uh, done, which has lived this many people mm. out of poverty. At this point, let's take a break. Do you wish you were smarter? Well, so do we. But the next best thing? We could make you sound smarter. And to help you with this endeavor, we are Simplified. A podcast uh, that attempts to break down the complex world around you with a little knowledge, a lot of poor jokes and a ton of random trivia. Episodes out every Monday. On the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. See ya! And we're back after the break. Let's move on to trade wars. <laughs> You've covered trade wars in your book. I have covered trade wars in the book. So, uh, yes, so the book, just for your listeners, the book is called No Great Hall, Trade Tariffs and Nationalism in Republican China, 1927 to 1945. Um, and I mentioned earlier on that one of the main tensions um, within the tariff policy um, of the nationalists is this question of how you can be a nationalist government and rely on tariffs from international trade to finance yourself. But there's another angle to this, which is the question of to what extent you can really implement a tariff schedule when one of the countries you're dealing with is an aggressive imperialist neighbor, Japan, in the case of 1930s China. So there are multiple instances of the nationalists um, raising tariffs on goods that are of particular interest to Japan and um, the Japanese um, using um, the threat of military force um, to get um, those schedules uh, uh, revised back down again. Mm. Um, So that's one thing that happens. But uh, the reason why um, I think there are lessons to be learned here from in terms of trade wars is that Another thing that happens is that the increase in tariffs um, produces an upsurge in smuggling, particularly mm-hmm. in the North China Plain, um, but also um, across the Taiwan Straits. Uh, Taiwan, of course, at the time is a Japanese colony. So it turns out um, that, for example, in the case of imported refined sugar, mm-hmm. that the demand for refined sugar is fairly inflexible. So. Chinese consumers, um, when they learn that uh, the national state has decided to uh, tax imported refined sugar heavily, don't switch to domestic substitutes. Um, they switch to um, smuggled um, uh, refined sugar. So that the national states all of a sudden has a second problem on its hand, um, how to police rampant smuggling, um, which uh, costs resources, which... Uh, costs attention. Um, and victimless crimes, essentially. Yeah. Um, so you have uh, yeah, you have an upsurge in illegal activities. And you know, just to be clear, when we talk about the smuggling of sugar, we're not talking about people carrying sugar in their suitcases, although that also happens. We're talking about boats full of sugar coming um, across the Taiwan streets. Uh, we're talking about lorries full of sugar being driven um, from Japanese-occupied um, Manchuria um, into the North China Plain. We're talking about entire trains stuffed with sugar um, running um, through that route and about Japanese and colonial Korean guards 
resisting the attempts by Chinese customs inspectors to check the content of those boats and trains and lorries. So the attempt to raise tariffs on imported sugar has very unintended consequences. Um, Now, the national state manages to get the problem under control, more or less, within the space of uh, two to three years by throwing an enormous amount of money at it. Mm. But um, that is at an enormous administrative and political cost, and it's also at the cost of escalating tensions uh, with one of its main neighbours. You know, I'm a historian, but maybe there are lessons to be learned here. The Swami is interesting also in that it exposes tensions within the Japanese colonial states. There are multiple instances of, for example, Japanese merchants in Tianjin complaining about the prevalence of smuggled sugar in the Tianjin marketplaces. And of course, that smuggled sugar is being brought in by Japanese smugglers. Um, we have instances of other customs complaining to uh, the Japanese consul general in Shanghai about Japanese smuggling and um, that official then saying that basically the Japanese foreign ministry has no way of influencing anything that the army and the navy do, and therefore he is regrettably unable to help with any of this, which could also be just a convenient excuse, but it shows up the tensions in the Japanese colonial state. But really, I think the main historical lesson to be learned here is that trade wars have very unintended consequences, and they're very hard to win. All right, which, uh, so this reminds me, um, my editor, Amit Varma, also does a podcast called The Scene and the Unseen. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that um, a lot of the policies that we enact have unseen effects that we do not account for and or cannot account for mm-hmm. till we see them at play. And this is one of those very typical seen and unseen cases mm-hmm. where you do not think that tariffs would typically increase the rates of smuggling, but they do. Do you think this is this would apply to a trade war today because you told me that you had um, a a longer term view of the trade war, of any trade war, Mm -hmm. I think, because that's your historical lens. Mm -hmm. Uh, But with current tensions between the US and China, which have been prevalent over the last year, uh, what do you think are the lessons to to be learned? Um, Well, I think with any trade war, um, you need to be very clear when you start it. what your objectives are, and um, how much you're prepared to sacrifice and to pay in order to achieve them. You probably also should have a timeline in you, and that, of course, in the case of elected governments, is uh, maybe more complex than it is for um, unelected governments, because um, or governments that are elected pro forma, um, because you know, there are elections to contend with. But I mean, really, my main, um, you know, the main thing that I think I learned from looking at the trade war, uh, trade wars that happened in China in the 1930s is just uh, how complex they are, and how they rarely ever end up solving the problem that they're intended to solve. What happens instead? Um, Well, I mean, in in the case of China, you get an outbreak of smuggling, and you get uh, multiple challenges to um, the nationalist state um, from uh, smugglers. Um, we have records of um, smugglers who are caught in the Pearl River Delta in um, the south of China by a competing local government. Uh, so that's the local government that, that's disputing the sovereignty of the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek. Um, that competing local government has its own custom service. So you have two different custom services um, 
operating in the Pearl River Delta, both of them Chinese, um, both of them um, claiming the right to uh, police trade. And the smugglers say quite clearly that um, they are happy to pay tariffs to um, their local government, but not to the nationalist government because they never see these people. Uh, they don't derive any benefit from their existence, so they don't see why they should have to pay taxes. So asserting, no, in this case, for the nationalist government asserting in the 1930s, asserting the right to police trade um, brings up these challenges to their sovereignty, which probably would not have been articulated in quite the same way um, had they been less assertive um, about um, achieving that kind of complete control of um, China's um, trade um, in the Pearl River Delta, which they didn't manage to achieve um, anyway, because um, as probably most Chinese customs officials today would agree, that is a very hard area uh, to police because of uh, overlapping um, claims of sovereignty, uh, because of the geography. So, again, I think the unintended consequence there is that a trade war uh, draws attention to um, lack of sovereignty. Um, should governments try to police um, trade when that is logistically um, very hard to do, and when their lacking ability to do that uh, only draws attention to the fact that they overpromised when they started out on a trade war. Again, possibly contemporary lessons um, uh, here. In terms of um, smuggling, I mean, there are obvious differences there, trade war between um, China and America today, and the trade war between China and Japan in the 1930s. Mm. And one of the obvious very obvious ones is to do with geography. There's no land border there, so yes. the smuggling is considerably more complex. Another one, of course, has to do with the geopolitics. Um, the 1930s trade wars in the context of, of Japan's imperialist expansion, again, very different from the situation today. But yeah, no, I think the, the main the conclusion really is just the complexity of trade wars um, and uh, complexity and the cost. All right. Uh one of the things that you said that was very interesting is the gaps in the nation state, right? The, you were speaking about the national state. Mm -hmm. um, but I was wondering in the contemporary case, is there a sort of um, wonder if the, the gaps in the Chinese nation state would come to the fore with the trade war? So I think in, the, in today's scenario, I think that is much less likely to happen. So... What you have in the 1930s is a scenario where the nationalists who claim to be the internationally recognized government of China only have effective control of six of China's uh, 30s provinces and regions. Mm. So that is why attempting to assert authority over faraway places in that context is a dangerous strategy because in a lot of these cases, it's then shown quite clearly to the local population that actually um, the nationalists in Nanjing are much less relevant to uh, local politics than whoever the local power order is. Um, I don't see any parallel to that um, in um, the uh, Chinese state of today. Um, you know, as we are seeing at the moment, um, the PRC is in comprehensive control of um, all, uh, well, with the exception of Taiwan, of all the territory um, that it claims, um, of all the territory that is marked on the maps as uh, being Chinese. So I don't think that that, that, that parallel um, 
really applies at the moment, um, but in the Chinese case, gaps in sovereignty um, within China's uh, state territory might be exposed. I think something that might happen is that um, it might become, you know, depending on how this trade war uh, develops, um, it might be harder um, for the Chinese party state to uh, claim that it is successful at delivering China's rays if it encounters more obstacle, more obstacles at the international level. But that, of course, could be spun quite nicely as saying, look at how all these other countries, well, especially one, um, especially one of them, are attempting to stop China's rise. And this is why it's so important that we are in complete control, because we are standing up for the interests of the Chinese nation. Which is interesting. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about is also that uh, currently in countries around the world, there's a, a worry that the PRC um, is subverting our democratic activities, right? So mm-hmm. whether it's Australia or Canada or the US, um, there are worries about meddling with elections, of fun- political funding, um, academic censorship, um, that the Confucius Institutes are hideouts for, I don't know, they make it seem like they're drug dens of illicit activities. What do you think of all of this? Right. Um, so I think what we're seeing is a lot of Chinese activity abroad. Uh, you mentioned the Confucius Institutes. Um, you know, there are now, there's now what I would call as called maybe a second generation of um, institutes, which are the institutes which are set up to study the One Built, One Road initiative. There are a lot of conferences on One Built, One Road that are set up with um, money from um, PRC sources. Um, There are uh, endowed chairs. Um, So we're seeing a lot of activity. as one of my colleagues uh, pointed out in discussion a few weeks ago, if the Confucius Institutes are a soft power initiative, then it's really not going particularly well because very expensive um, and they raise a lot of hackles. And institutions like the University of Chicago and the University of Stockholm have already um, decided not to renew uh, the agreements establishing those institutes uh, on campus. So uh, we are seeing that uh, these kinds of operations, and I think it's quite clear that uh, the way Confucius Institutes work is different from, say, the Goethe Institutes or the um, British, Council. British Council or the Alliance Française, because there is a political component there um, which doesn't exist um, in or only exists in a much more modest way in the case of um, these other initiatives. How successful that is, is, I think, um, another question. What that means for academic freedom is, I think, a very interesting question. Um, but you mentioned the case of Australia, um, and there seem to be two things that a lot of my Australian colleagues and friends in academia are um, exercised about at the moment, and rightly so. One is the continuing role of the Confucius Institutes, and the other is um, a, a case of an Australian um, donor attempting to um, establish um, a curriculum in the study of Western civilizations, uh, the, the Ramsey Centers. 
And I think a lot of my Australian colleagues would say that that is as much of a threat to academic freedom as, or possibly even more so, because it would sit much more closely within uh, the core activities of the university. So um, I think the lesson there is that um, any university, any um, educational institution should be very careful if anyone comes and offers money that comes with strings, um, whether that is Confucius Institute or whether it is um, a donor who has very particular ideas about um, um, how history or how civilization um, should be taught. Um, so obviously the Ramsey, you know, the Ramsey Center, that's basically one individual with a lot of money, whereas the Confucius Institutes, that's lots and lots and lots of institutes. But I think the underlying question, what does a university do? Um, who should pay for it? And how welcoming should a university be to external money? That's something that a university and governments that um, fund universities um, should think about long before they think about um, any kind of um, foreign policy consideration, because that's a much more fundamental question um, for academic freedom. And what I'm noticing more and more is that in the world of Chinese scholars, at least from the outside, it looks like there is a polarization between the way people fundamentally think about the rise of China. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about the rise of China? How do you perceive it? What do you think are its effects on it? Right. So I think what you're describing here is, you know, the, the uh, debate between um, the panda huggers and uh, the panda clubbers. Um, and I would say I probably don't fit into either of those camps uh, just because, um, to me, the rise of China is a historical and a political fact. I mean, we observe it. It is very clearly is happening. Um, and it's quite clear that uh, you know, we are seeing a shift from the unipolar world um, of the post-Cold War international system to a multipolar world where there will no longer be just one superpower. Um, now, it seems to me that any attempt to delay that process of change or even to avert it completely is um, something that would be intensely costly um, and not just in terms of resources, also quite possibly in terms of human lives. Um, and it also um, would be something that, you know, where the outcome is uh, far from certain. I mean, thinking about recent attempts by uh, superpowers to change political trajectories in countries that are much smaller um, than China, you know, we're looking at a string of um, very costly conflicts, uh, which very rarely achieved what they were meant to achieve. So I think the idea that the rise of China somehow is something that can be stopped seems to me to be a very dangerous route to conflict. Now, especially in this town, when you say something like that, um, the word appeasement is then mentioned, mm. and not in a polite way. Um, so do I think that accommodating the rise of China is the equivalent of appeasement. And you know, by appeasement, of course, you know, that brings us back to the 1930s. Mm. All of our conversation today seems to um, come back to the 1930s in some, some way or another. Um, so is um, being realistic about the rise of China um, the equivalent of being Neville Chamberlain? I don't think it is, because I don't think the rise of China is something um, that can be stopped. Um, 
that brings us to the question of whether the rise of China is something that should be stopped. Um, again, I think on one level that's about who governs China and what we think of the political and moral values of the party that does govern China. Um, but on another level, that's also about a transformation of a unipolar into a, into a multipolar world. Um, and on a third level, I think it's about um, China beyond the CCP and about um, a world beyond the interests of nation states. And there, to me, it becomes a question of uh, cultures, a question of um, what the dominant culture in the world of today is, whether we should think that it's somehow a natural state for uh, the world to be dominated by uh, countries where people are white and um, where people speak um, Western languages, or actually whether what we're seeing is um, a change to a world order where you know, there are different hegemons, um, there are different um, countries that are important, um, where people speak different languages, where people don't all look the same. I think those are bigger questions there. And that very particular moment in history of 19th and 20th, uh, 20th century history, where so much of the world's power and resources are concentrated um, in the West. You know, we may be seeing uh, the end of that as well. Thank you. I think that is a good note to end on. Thank you so much for speaking to me, Felix. And uh, I mean, that was fun. That's it for this episode of States of Anarchy. If you're interested in reading more about China or the nationalists, then there's a bunch of readings for you in the podcast description. If you have any comments or questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter, where I'm at the rate Hamsani H, or on Instagram at the rate States of Anarchy. You can listen to States of Anarchy on the IVM podcast app, website, Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts from. I'll be back next Tuesday. Hey everybody, we have a brand new podcast series by Bloomberg Quint called BQ Conversations, which covers a range of topics like business strategies, latest trends in technology such as cybersecurity and artificial intelligence, and also personal finance. Episodes are out on the IVM podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts. How aware do you think you are of your laws and rights? Do you look up to laws when you are caught up in situations? Do you know what your rights are when you're stuck somewhere bad? Well, here's a show that can help you move an inch closer to being aware of what your rights are. Tune into Know Your Kanoon with me, Amar Rana. This is a podcast meant to answer all your law-related queries. Catch Know Your Kanoon every week on the IVM website or the app or anywhere you get your podcast from. <laughs>